Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 276 of the Fun with Cars, Formula One, and other motorsports podcasts, or episode 10 of 2021. Yes, we are in the double digits. I'm Rob Warner, and today I'm joined by my good friend, English gentleman, and racing expert, Christopher Roche. Hi, Chris. Hello, Robin. I'm going to have to take you up on that, especially as the Six Nations uh, rugby is on. Welsh, Welsh gentleman, if you don't mind, at this moment in time. A, 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 the Welshish Englishman I know. Uh, <laughs> We're winning. <laughs> so that's, that's really well accentuate the Welshness in the family history. <laughs> <laughs> it is Monday evening, March 15th, and I don't think anyone is in the mood for joking right now as we mourn the passing of Murray Walker. Uh, we'll discuss what Mr. Walker meant to us and indeed the sport... And then we will, in fact, uh, dig into what we learned from the single three-day testing session that recently wrapped up in Bahrain. Uh, Chris, Murray Walker was a voice for the ages. What did he mean to you? Um, he, he was Formula One for many years for me. Uh, I started watching Formula One when he was the prime commentator along with James Hunt. Um, so we're talking, you know, the bulk of uh, the 90s. Um, and you know it wasn't it, it was very hard to to watch and listen to Formula One when he no longer commentated uh, he, he was brilliant at making even the most mundane race seem exciting I think that's yeah. uh, that's how I remember him very that very talented commentator that's fascinating uh, a, a mundane race entertaining still yeah you know I'm this is an awkward passing for me because obviously I knew who Murray Walker was and uh, certainly have heard his voice on YouTube clips and rerunning clips of uh, racing gone by, but I did not grow up with him right. in the sport. I, that, that was not the voice I attached to Formula One. That was the voice I attached to Formula One history. And yet, it is really amazing to me how much it still impacted me because I think you're right. He had such an innate, visceral enthusiasm for the sport that you couldn't help but be at least a little bit, um, a little bit more excited when you were listening to him talk about it. Yeah, one uh, somebody mentioned that. Uh he thought Murray commentated as if his trousers were on fire. <laughs> a constant, you know, um, as I said, I mean, his knowledge of the sport was, was incredible, but yet he, he was able to, to explain it to people who may have just switched it on for the first time, you know, without um, being condescending. But he always, you know, that innate enthusiasm that he had for the sport just uh, shone through his every word, really. And... Um, uh, you know, and I recall it, things like the 94 race at Imola when he had to commentate through the aftermath of Senna's death. And he did that, you know, incredibly well, um, very tactfully in that difficult situation. Um, but his enthusiasm uh, for some of the great moments in the sport when Prost and Senna crashed at uh, Suzuka for the championship mm. decider or mm. uh, the Hill-Schumacher Hill clash in 94... 
um, or even when Hill managed to win the title in 96. Those are moments that stand out for me because of Walker's uh, commentary at the time. And, and um, yeah, he was um, in, incredible career, really. I mean, I re-listened to the Beyond the Grid interview um, with him that uh, Tom Clarkson did. And it's a brilliant interview. It's well worth a listen. Uh, about an hour of Murray describing, you know, his... Uh, his career in Formula One and commentating in his own words and, it, and this was done when he was 95 years old but his recollection of really tiny minutiae of Formula One for the last 50 odd years is astonishing really well uh -huh. and the way it ended with Murray just kind of reliving 54321 lights <laughs> out you know as, as you said as a 95 year old man I mean that was that was you know, I I keenly remember that interview as well, and that really struck me. He's like, yeah, he he definitely, the passion obviously was still there, and it was just the uh, sharpness uh, of the man at ninety five was absolutely both impressive and envious. I'm like, oh man, if if I'm that sharp at that age, I could only hope to be so lucky. Yeah, I mean, he was. He mentioned that his favourite season was 1976, uh, when uh, it was the big Hunt Lauda battle. That was uh, yes. that even if you weren't around watching the the racing at that that time, which I'm pretty sure neither of us were. Um, <laughs> uh, <Yeah. laughs> the, the, the movie Rush will will have maybe brought it into the more modern uh, psyche, and you know he was able to recount details of that season. You know, a, a disqualification of Hunt uh, for a, 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 the wing being slightly uh, off the, the, the maximum dimension. You know, amazing, amazing recall. And um, you know, and he, the funniest thing about Murray though uh, was that he he made the odd gaff occasionally, and and would misquote and in fact there was uh, one of the British papers published some of his most famous sort of um, mistakes over the years but because he was so popular and, and so knowledgeable mo nobody held it against him right everyone just it, it made him more endearing not less and mm. uh, yeah and some of them were absolute classics and 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 very very funny but uh, he actually got the nickname muddy talker because of it <laughs> at one point that that is funny the the other thing that was I think really intriguing about Murray Walker was that he didn't grow up as a radio announcer or as a or as a follower of the sport. Super. I mean, he got into the work he did later in life. I think he was in his fifties by the time he started and didn't really really get into it until his sixties. Is that right? Yeah, but he he um, he has a motorsport history. His dad was a bike racer, and he actually started uh, racing on bikes, um, and and want, had an ambition to become a you know a top draw bike racer, but realised he didn't quite have the talent. Um, and then he he was yeah, you're right. He was a full time um, executive in in the advertising world in the UK, and he actually came up with quite a few quite famous taglines for British confectionery and, and dog food and things like that and was doing uh, commentating just as part of his hobby his passion because he still loved motorsport and you know his his motorsport links go far beyond Formula One uh, but of course that's what he's most well known for and um, and then yeah you're right I think he was actually in his 60s when he retired from his advertising career and became a full-time Formula One commentator 
at the same time all this is going on, I mean, this man lived a very full life. You know, to to make it to 97, there is a lot. This, to me, it does really feel like this is, in most any term, a, a celebration of life more than it is the morning of a loss. I mean, he... He he did it right, and he did it as good as as you can. I would say, as good as about anyone can do. Yeah, I think the I think you're absolutely right. It should be a celebration of his life. Uh, I think obviously at these these difficult times, the, the the frustration always is that you can't necessarily celebrate it in the way you'd want to. A little bit like with Sterling Moss and, and other mm. celebrities we've lost over the last year. Yeah, it, it, until we can get out of COVID, we can't really. Uh, Honor, honor them appropriately. I, it was nice to see during the testing in Bahrain, which I know we're going to come on to shortly, they did uh, put up a tribute on the electronic screen over the start-finish straight uh, in, in honor of Murray, which I thought was a nice touch. And uh, and I'm sure maybe something will be done over the first Grand Prix weekend or later in the summer when, when we hopefully have crowds back at races. I, I would be shocked if there wasn't some kind of tribute. It's something that I think we can come back to on multiple occasions and there is a little bit in the Formula One world, a little bit of a WWMD what would Murray do and uh, <laughs> we, we can have we can have him and we have his voice still now and there are so many uh, pivotal moments in the sport that we can look back and we can still remember and relive him so he is in many ways still with us and uh I think that's that's something to celebrate as well. Absolutely. Were Murray uh, part of this podcast right now, he would say, well, let's talk about the race cars and the racing, of course, because <laughs> uh, we just wrapped up, I believe it was yesterday, it was Sunday, uh, we wrapped up day three of the one and only three-day test in Bahrain, and uh, there's plenty to talk about. I mean, first of all, all ten cars have been revealed. Um, all ten cars do indeed run, and uh, we we got a lot of we got a lot of laps in. Yeah, it was some pretty interesting weather to contend with. Uh, sandstorm on the first day on Friday. Um, the test was configured so they would run during the day and into the evening and nighttime under the lights. Um, so they had to deal with you know big temperature swings a uh, lot of wind a uh, lot of sand on the track which made things i think a little tricky and then the other thing that the teams were focusing on was more evaluating different setups and options on the car rather than doing uh, you know a lot of long runs which they they typically would have done in the past when they had more days available so it's hard to really draw too many conclusions from such a short test and and obviously there's always the the huge number of variables in terms of how hard uh, you know the teams are really trying for competitive times and fuel loads and so on and so forth but but uh, the the leading times are interesting I mean you could argue that Red Bull dominated the test and, and Max Verstappen recorded uh, the quickest lap uh, over the three days uh, the only one to get into a 128 um, and not even on the quickest tires so it looked like a really uh, positive test for Red Bull yeah, and I think that was the most interesting part of it to me was I so first of all, I have a very uh glib uh view of preseason testing because it is there is so much that the teams are not showing us yet and we know so little 
we want the teams want us to learn as little as possible from the test so that they can learn as much as possible from the test without sharing with the other teams. So I've always found that the first race is so much more telling than the first test and it's a little bit it's a it's a touch like gambling trying to discern any conclusions from test day. Um, that's more than anything just my point of view. But there is definitely things you can glean from, you know, body language, the number of laps completed, and, uh, you know, how how programs were run, how often people spun, things like that. And it did seem, from that point of view, that Mercedes is not going to have as smooth sailing of a year as they've had in past, in the past, potentially. Yeah, that's certainly the indication. Um, so Mercedes uh, was one of the few teams that didn't do a shakedown prior to the test. So most other teams were able to take advantage of the filming day where you run on mm-hmm. uh, you know, the non-typical tires and, and you at least do 100 miles just to go through all the systems checks and make sure the cars are running as expected prior to the test. Mercedes elected not to do that. And in fact, they're doing a shakedown between this test and the first race. So a slightly different uh, program. And of course, Mercedes have run incredibly reliably at prior uh, pre-season tests, but this time they they had a lot of problems. I mean, first day they lost uh, a lot of time due to gearbox issues. And that wasn't actually um, the only issue they had. They had other problems with the car and also some of the, the teams they supply had issues, or, or specifically Aston Martin had problems with some of the components that Mercedes supply, namely the gearbox and the turbo. So yeah. quite unusual to see Mercedes uh, and, and their powertrains struggle in preseason. So that, that's an ominous sign. Um, and, then, and, and yet, sorry to interject, but mm-hmm. uh, McLaren Mercedes, they were more or less running trouble three. Well, yeah. and so were Williams. So it, it was odd that it wasn't yeah. you know, affecting all four teams. So it's patchy, I think, is the conclusion. It doesn't look like it's a disaster, but it's... It's more, you know, it would be a little bit concerning given that in, in prior years they've had no such issues. But and then and then the car itself, which seems to have quite a complicated floor to try and, you know, claw back the downforce loss with the floor changes. It seems now it's funny. Red Bull and Mercedes seem to have swapped roles because last year the Red Bull was known for its tricky, snappy type handling uh, on the limit. And now their handling seems to be sorted, whereas Mercedes seemed to be struggling. Um, and is far less predictable and uh, and caught out Lewis on a couple of occasions and, and Valtteri. And and so the, the two teams have swapped roles and, and now Mercedes seem to have reliability issues and and an unpredictable or less predictable car. Um, and, and one of the things, if we just want to expand on that a little bit, what was explained in a really good article today in Motorsport magazine by a guy called Mark Hughes, who was who was speculating that the wind conditions in Bahrain may have contributed to Mercedes' struggles. And he Mm. pointed out that on a couple of occasions in in prior seasons, notably 2019, Mercedes have struggled to get their car set up and and to uh, be the quickest on the grid in particularly um, windy situations. He cited uh, Bahrain in 19 and also Suzuka in 2019. And so he thinks that that may may not have helped them. And the other the other thing he was uh, uh, postulating on was that potentially the low rate cars have been more affected by the regulation change to the floor than the higher rate cars, which is of course uh, uh, the Red Bull style chassis. So 
So there's a lot I think we've got to we've got to learn yet. And I think you know at the end of the day, uh, the, the the big point for me is is if you look at the times. First of all, Max's time was 1.7 seconds off Lewis's pole position time from 2020. So these cars have all got slower. And so based on the testing times and whether or not we really see the time similar to last year or not. Um, you know, we'll only know until uh, qualifying in Bahrain. But you've also got some, you know, the fact that George Russell was less than a tenth off Lewis's best time. I mean, Williams hasn't closed up, you know, a second and a half in the space of one winter. I mean, that's just not realistic. Just like, exactly, uh, you right. know, Ferrari and, and Alfa Tori haven't closed up on Red Bull. I mean, these times are not really representative, as you, as exactly you right. yes. explained at the beginning. Yeah. And I think... Because that, that is one thing I've noticed, you know, so the, the pure pace time, seeing how there was uh, changes to the aerodynamics in an attempt to slow these cars down, it does seem in an extremely just blunt point of view, seems like they have achieved that. But really by how much is hard to say. And also, uh, I think it's fair to point out that if you look at Bahrain qualifying from 2020, that was near the end of the season after a season's worth of development stunted as it may have been because of the pandemic and uh, we're now looking at brand new cars of the 2021 season yes they're not whole new chassis but obviously they've still there's been a lot of significant changes come from a lot of teams so um, there's still a year of development ahead of us so anyway I'm just making the point uh, that there's a lot of reasons to detach ourselves from the looking at uh, these lap times versus the lap times of 2020. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I think to your earlier statement, I mean, what we can do is look at the general sort of team performance, the struggles they may or may not have had, and, and sort of the vibes coming out to get a sense of where they where they think they've made progress or not. So for sure, if you compare Red Bull and Mercedes, Red Bull seem a lot more positive uh, than Mercedes at this time, but they're still, you know, we haven't even got to race one yet and, and uh, there's time for Mercedes to potentially recover and then it'll be a long season. So, um, so it's, but it sounds like it's game on, which is good. I think we'd all like to have a closer championship fight um, than we've had in the last few seasons. What about individual drivers? What about anything to conclude from seeing Sergio Perez in the Red Bull or uh, uh, Tsunda in the uh, Alpha Tauri or um, Fernando in the Alpine I mean have you have you have you come to any conclusions or any thoughts from seeing the different drivers in their different cars yeah I mean there's a lot to, to go through there I mean so let's talk on, uh, about Yuki Tsunoda so this is a rookie um, in his first F1 uh, you know, official test as part of the Alpha Tori team. Um, he impressed a lot of people. Went for a head-to-head -head against uh, Max Verstappen at the end of of day three um, to try and set the quickest time. He was on faster tyres, which gave him a slight advantage. But uh, but the the general consensus was that he seems to have settled in and and is uh, you know certainly making good progress, uh, getting comfortable at Alpha Tori. So that that's great. And uh, obviously he'll be. He'll be battling for best rookie honours um, with uh, the likes of Schumacher and 
and our friend Mazapan. So, uh, so oh, yeah, yes. definitely, definitely Yuki Tsunoda impressed, and AlphaTauri also seems to have made, you know, made, had a good test and seemed to run reliably and, and well. So, so that was uh, that looks promising. I think if we switched over to Ferrari, we had obviously well, Carlos. Well, real quick, yep. real quick, just since we're on AlphaTauri, it seemed mm-hmm. like Pierre Gasly was genuinely in good spirits about the performance of that car as well. So right. there's potential that, that that could be a fairly formidable pairing um, in terms of mid-season battles this year. Yeah, that's right. Positive vibes coming out of there, uh, out of that team. Uh, it seems like they've you know done a good development car, and so they should be able to you know c- continue to try and make progress up the midfield. Absolutely. I mean, touching on drivers that are that are either new or moved. Uh, I mean, I did hear that or was reading that Carlos Sainz seemed to be struggling. Although he set a reasonably quick time, um, he was fourth quickest overall. If we're going to just uh, oh uh, uh, no, actually I might stand corrected. Third quickest time he set uh, overall, but he didn't seem to be as consistent uh, as Charles in the Ferrari. Um, and it does appear that the Ferrari powertrain is a step forward. If you the headline time set by some of their customer teams like Alfa Romeo looked promising, and the claim was that their their speed trap numbers were a lot better this year, but but mm-hmm. it doesn't, um, and of course the car ran uh, pretty pretty reliably through the three days, I think. But um, but yeah, the question is whether it's enough to get them back to the top of the midfield, or even you know back up with Red Bull and Mercedes. It seemed to be a big question based on their <clears throat> performance over the three days. So, but I think they they certainly need Carlos to perform better than Vettel did last year if they're going to make significant progress. And it seems like that's um, something he's still coming to terms with. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, I want to talk about Haas a minute, or Haas, mm. excuse me. Uh, and I want to focus on one thing that caught my attention. Mick Schumacher's voice sounded very, very young. Like, he's an adult, right? I mean, it's not like he's 14. <laughs> uh, and I mean this with all due respect, but he sounded like if a young teenager was trying to do an impression of Michael Schumacher. I just couldn't believe how young he sounded to me. Now, so my question is, does that just just mean I'm old and my perception of how voices sound has changed enough that uh, I've skewed skewed what my thinking is? Or or do you, did you get any, do you have any opinions on this at all? Or am I alone here? I think, uh, I think it might be a sign of getting old, mate. I mean, they do, you know, it is it is pretty scary when you see that the really young rookies come into the sport as you get older, because it just seems uh, slightly ridiculous. I mean, he's only, what, five years older than my daughter, which is a really scary thought. Uh, oh, so, geez, dude. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah that is. <laughs> well, because uh, I, I don't think there's, I don't think there's any drivers that have been born in the 21st century yet. Because I th- did, because Lando is the youngest, or at least was the youngest last year. But now that the rookies are God, no, I bet I bet Mick is twenty first century born. I bet you he is. I yeah, I bet I think I haven't checked that, but I'm pretty sure one of them has to be. 
Well, I'm going to check. I'm going to check on Mick right now since I brought yeah. it up. I mean, I, I I didn't hear him. I didn't hear any of his interviews over the three day test, but I have heard him interviewed before during the F two season last year, and I have to say, I didn't. I, that that same comment didn't strike me. I I didn't get that impression uh, of Adel. You know, prepubescence, whatever you want to call it. It just seemed. Uh, I mean, yeah, he's he's a he's a young guy, but I mean, he does carry himself well. I mean, I've heard interviews. Oh, absolutely uh, right. And he, he's I am very polished, very uh, you know, very capable of, of speaking for himself. He doesn't like to talk about his dad too much, understandably, uh, given the situation. But he, you know, he's certainly able to uh, to do the PR work very uh, in a very polished manner. I am in no way trying to suggest otherwise. I 100% agree with you there. Just I couldn't believe how young he sounded. That was the one and only thing. <laughs> but there's even this is good news for me. I, I mean, I could be quickly deflated, I'm sure. But uh, Mick Schumacher was born the 22nd of March in 1999. Oh, boy. Yeah, but how, so, how about Yuki? I'm pretty sure Yuki or Mazapad. Uh, yeah, see, yeah, I you got to keep looking here, dude. Uh, okay, here we go. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, it's going to be interesting to watch the rookies develop this year. There's there's a lot there's a lot of things about this season that are atypical, and uh, you know not starting with brand new cars. It's also a 23 race season. Um, you know, we're going to different places at different time. This is the first year that um, finances are being actively looked at. Uh, so how will that uh, how will all these things change development? Uh, for the set, ah, May eleventh, two thousand. Who is that, Sonoda or Mazepin? That's uh, Sonoda. Yeah, Mazepin <laughs> doesn't count. He doesn't count. Mazepin. So bad luck. Yeah, we have twenty-first century drivers on the grid this year. Good. Yeah, good. All right. Well, okay. So it's official, and I will look up Mazepin since I just said he doesn't count like a jerk. I need to at least. So I'll, I'll ramble on while you're looking that up about has. I mean, so th their times were a little bit worrying, but they were. I mean, if we if so, we'll come on to Aston Martin a little bit. But Aston Martin were comfortably the slowest, but they had all sorts of issues over the three day test. But if you take them out of the equation, has were quite a bit slower by more than a second than anyone else. Now they could, of course, elected to to not go for any headline times, but. Um, the the news from their launch where they 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 launched the new white has in the russian flag livery which was a little bit controversial um was um that they're already focused on 22 and so mm -hmm. i've got a feeling that they're going to be definitely the slowest by some margin especially with two rookies uh behind the wheel so i think it, it's just going to be a personal it's going to be like an f2 plus season from <laughs> to see who well, can get on top of each other that would be quite amusing well and you know it it is fascinating there is there is two positive things to glean from that one there is going to be a kind of a i told you so that a lot of people said to Hass with two rookies um and two uh that Theoretically, if that is correct, that means Williams is on the up. And uh, I think most every fan of Formula One is also at least to some level a fan of Williams because how can you not be? Um, and I am happy to report that Nikita Mazepin, this is actually fascinating, was born the 2nd of March, 1999, which means hmm. that Mick and Nikita are actually extremely close in age, uh, nine days apart. 
So okay. they are they are teammates that share uh, very they're very close to sharing birthdays. It's a fun little tidbit <sighs> to learn from. See who 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 said you can't learn anything from testing. <laughs> So let's yeah. let's move on to Williams, and I'll try and keep this ball rolling here. The yeah, Williams, Williams and then test. We need to talk Aston Martin. Okay, Williams test was was uh, pretty reliable, even with the Mercedes uh, power unit. Um, George Russell's time was uh, was reasonably quick. He was there, down in the low thirties um, and set the sixth quickest time. Um, they their their launch indicated that. Um, they're going to have a new look for this year. I'm not sure what you thought of the livery. They claimed it, it invoked uh, uh, memories of the 90s Williams, which I didn't buy at all, to be <laughs> honest with you. Um, but I think, you know, there's a lot of good noises coming out of Jos Capito, who's their, their new uh, CEO of the team. Um, and they, uh, they, they, look to be, they look to be back in the right direction. Uh, how, how much better they'll be this year I think it's unlikely to move them significantly further up the grid but they are targeting trying to beat Haas and Alfa Romeo consistently this season and, and you know trying to get the odd point here or there so that seems like a realistic ambition and then like many of the teams their eye is really on 22 with the big wholesale uh, rule changes as a big opportunity there so I think we're going to have a lot of teams you know, launch and do very little development on the 21 chassis, uh, and then everyone's going to focus on 22, which is going to make things quite interesting. Because uh, it yeah. could, could be an open goal for someone this year if you decide to just go all in in the 21 season um, yeah. while everyone else is focused on the 22. But I guess you've got to be close enough to win races from the beginning to actually um, to take advantage of that approach. But uh, but yeah, so there's a lot of similar noises, but Williams seemed to have got off on the right foot. Um, at least in terms of its first test. So that's, that's well, good. There's one other thing that is definitely in Williams' favor for 2021, which is George Russell is very much going to be aiming to impress Mercedes and work really hard to get a Mercedes contract for 22. I well, think no, that's hang on, hang on. top of hear? George's mind. Didn't you hear? Valtteri's going to win the championship. That's what he said at the launch. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I, I, I did hear that, but I think that um, Valtteri is still is still very much deeply wounded by how he knows he's not he's not as good as Nico Rosberg, and how he also knows that Lewis Hamilton knows he's not as good as Nico Rosberg, and it doesn't matter how many races or championships he wins, he just feels inadequate, and so there's just something eating at both of them, and. And Russell will be the one that really rise above that, since Russell got into the sport after Rosberg left, and uh, and 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 Russ, this will be Russell's year to get the contract. And that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. That is rock solid logic I just used. I mean, there's no doubt that Russell had a taste of the good life last year, right, and wants more of it. So I'm sure he'll be super motivated, which will only be to the to Williams's benefit this season. So that's good. I I, I don't even other... think it was an appetizer. I think it was an a it was an amuse bouche. I think is the term. <laughs> okay. And he is definitely still hungry. So if we just keep keep on the which drivers impress for a moment, especially the ones that have been moved, moving around, I guess Daniel Ricciardo seems to have settled at McLaren very quickly. He had a good test, was was quick, 
consistent, didn't make any mistakes, so that, that caught everyone's eyes. And then McLaren also seemed to be doing really well with the installation of the Mercedes powertrain instead of the Renault one. Uh, and that they seemed pretty pacey, and they seemed to have a few tricks up their sleeve as well. They, they were one of the few teams that spotted a loophole in the new diffuser regulations, so they seemed to have an advantage there, which might give them mm. a little bit of uh, better rear downforce than some of the other teams. Although I'm sure they're all busy copying it now in the, in the ten days we have before the first race. Yeah, and then yeah. the other driver that impressed was, uh, you know, someone that a few of us may may remember. A certain Fernando Alonso who turned up broken jaw, titanium screws and all, but uh, didn't look like he'd been away at all and looked very quick, quick in the groove, um, obviously already putting Ocon in the shade, as we all expected. Yes. And uh, yeah, he seems to be happy to be back. So that's that, you know, those guys look, look good. Um, that is then, a um, determined man. And just well, for whatever reason, Renault... <clears throat> Renault... Mm-hmm. By any name, Renault is his home in Formula One. He just, he just needs to accept that, that's his, that's where he belongs. Well, and I have to say, uh, Renault slash Alpine looked uh, looked like an upgrade in, in livery for this season as well. I think most people thought that their their new paint scheme in the Tricolor uh, is pretty decent. I don't know what you thought. Yeah, no, I I, I tend to be. I tend to be fairly uh, even keel about those things. You know, I'm not a huge fan of big, bright pink cars necessarily, but uh, but it certainly uh, the Alpine car didn't necessarily stand out to me so much. But it certainly didn't look bad. I I, I, I feel I feel like that's a non-answer, so I apologize. But uh, you know, it didn't it didn't strike me one way or the other. The the one thing that amused me was they did tweet. That the the livery represented the flags of both France and Britain. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> who are you trying to kid with that one? I mean, okay, Enstone is in Britain, but that team is very much playing up its French uh, origin more than any yeah. other. Uh, so that made me chuckle. The other news from Alpine, just real quick, is that they've now announced that Daniel Kvyat is going to be their reserve driver. So oh, yes, yes, yes. Close yes. the door for for poor old Nico Hulkenberg. Although Hulkenberg seems to be being lined up for a Mercedes reserve driver role, so um, so so he may get uh, a chance to get that podium this year after all. Do not count him out. Uh, you have to love, you have to love his uh, his super sub status and what he's been able to do with it. I, I've I've quite enjoyed that. So uh, I'm I'm all for uh, Mr. Hulkenberg continuing in the sport if it is even if it is just part time. So. Um, what what struck you about the Aston Martin? Um, well, obviously they had severe issues throughout the test. Uh, so as I mentioned earlier, gearbox and turbo. Um, yep. They didn't do as many laps as they wanted. Vettel felt he was at least 100 laps short of where he wanted to be. Didn't seem like he was that comfortable yet with the car. But um, but from from the launch, I mean, they were... You know, it was it was probably the most impressive of all the car launches, um, and um, you know the the thinking by uh, certainly their technical director is that the handling of the Aston should much uh, should suit Seb's driving style much more than than the Ferrari did last season. So the the, the thinking there is that he should be a huge boost in addition to the team that to help them drive further up the grid. So a lot of positive noises coming out of. Uh, out of Silverstone. Um, the thing that yeah. amused me most, yep, 
Lance was quicker in the test. Yeah, okay. Well, we'll see. I mean, so, will the real Vettel stand up? Or... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. He, he yeah. was. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, those, don't, those laps don't count yet, do they? That's right. But uh, the, the, so the funny thing that amused me was the was how much they were emphasising the Britishness of Aston Martin and uh, that the car was draped in a Union flag at the launch. So I, it did it did uh, pique my interest. So I went a little bit further back in history for this team that started off as Jordan back in 1991, and even though throughout its entire life, of tw- you know, we're talking 30 years. Uh, it's always been at Silverstone. It's never actually run under a British flag. So really? obviously, yeah, it was Even Irish under, under Jordan. Well, yeah, I mean, was it, it an he Irish was, flag? Yeah, the yeah, their race wins were all recorded under an Irish entrant. Um, ah. So and and of course Eddie Jordan personified Ireland for many of us. So um, uh, <laughs> so that was uh, only only right. But then it then morphed into a Russian team in the guise of Midland. A Dutch team when it was Spike, an Indian team obviously yep. under Force India, and then Canadian under Racing Point. So, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that uh, plays out. Yeah, no, the, uh, the the Dutch team under Spiker was quite memorable for me. I found that fascinating, <laughs> and I love saying we love Spiker. So the the one other thing I wanted to talk about, and it seems, you know. My initial views seem pretty positive. What do you think of the 2021 tire? Well, it's black and round. Looks similar to yeah. You. That's two checkpoints right there. Um, but did you? Did you did, was there any indication to you that uh, this tire is going to allow the drivers to push harder, or are are we? Is it the same as anything else about these preseason tests? We don't know enough about what the teams were doing to to make any kind of comments there about how these tires might perform over the season? Yeah, I'll be honest with you. I didn't really focus on that, but I, I don't remember reading too much about drivers being positive about the new tire compounds. Did you? I, I didn't really see any news about the tire at all. The only thing I noted was that there was some prototype tires being run, and they were essentially the same tire, but just built in a different factory. But I didn't see a lot of feedback from drivers saying, oh yeah, these tires are much much better we can push harder on them i didn't see any of that so i think yes. maybe maybe we have to wait for a couple of races in to get that to get so that, here's that answer. but here's what i here's what i found and this is what's giving me hope hmm. tires are a fantastic heel for drivers and teams alike they are the redheaded stepchild and there wasn't tons of positive news about the tire, but there also was not tons of negative news about the tire. The tires were kind of in the background mm. and makes me think I'm kind of thinking no news is good news here. That's okay. that's where my head is. My head is, is like, oh, they're not hating on the tires. Oh, hey, hey, uh, they're not hating on the tires. Isn't that just because it's preseason testing? They, well, they exactly. Hate on so, the tires when they they can't make a move, you know, when they sit behind another car for twenty laps or whatever. Well, but in fact, we did get some racing action between, I believe it was Kimi Raikkonen and, uh, oh shoot, it was Carlos one of the Sainz, rookies. I believe. Of, yeah, oh, Carlos, it wasn't one of the rookies. Yeah, Carlos Sainz and Kimi Raikkonen. 
They yeah. were they were battling. It seemed like some pretty close racing to me. So, uh, so I'm gonna give. <laughs> I will bet you. Good. I will bet you a bottle of gin, Chris. Oh my goodness! Here we go. I will bet you a bottle of gin that the 2021 tires will last the entire season and they will not be kicked out and moved to a different team or become reserve tires for a different series or something. So that is my bottle of gin. I'm not going to take that bet. So let's move on to the final final piece of news that I thought was interesting, which was uh, rumors that Volkswagen, the mighty Volkswagen, will re-enter the sport in uh, potentially 2025 with the new engine regs. I think we've all heard this a few times before, but but this uh, this rumour seems to have uh, legs, as they say. So the e-fuels are the key. So they need some sort of biofuel regulation to tempt them in. And whether it's Porsche or Audi or VW itself that would be entering the sport is, uh, is open uh, to speculation. But uh, Don't rule but out that, Bentley. The Bentley. Oh, that's right. Or, Bentley or Ducati. <laughs> We've got or Seat. <laughs> or Skoda. <laughs> Skoda, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I uh, would actually, I would love to see a Skoda Formula One team. That would be pretty brilliant. <laughs> I mean, a Seat Formula One team, that would be something for Alonso to jump into. Um, well, to be fair to Skoda, they were quite the rallying car company at one point. They, they, they became quite strong there. They were laughed at. They were mocked for a while. Yeah. But... Uh, I think that's more motorsport credibility than Seat. I don't think they've ever competed at any level of international well, motorsport. Well, that's another reason for Seat to jump in. Because what was it? One of the one of the teams that were uh, when there were twelve teams for a few years. Um, yeah. uh, one of them was a Spanish team, and it did not go well. Uh, I can't. Uh, HKS or something like that. HKA, HRS. HRS. H- HRT. I think. Hey, we're, something we're like honing, that. Anyway, something like that. We're honing yeah. in on it. Um, but uh, that was a Spanish team, and obviously they did not represent Spain quite as proudly as they would have liked. So this is this is a chance for Seat to jump in and uh, reclaim some Spanish glory. But obviously that would be good, you know, to re- introduce another manufacturer to the sport. Um, and then the other thing that I quite liked about that whole rumor was, you know, where would where would they, you know, which team would they supply and. There are now so many links to VW up and down the grid. So you've got Joost Capito, as I mentioned earlier, at Williams, who, who's a former executive at VW. At, at McLaren, you've got Andreas Seidel, who's the former Porsche Motorsport uh, head, of course. Um, you know, and, and there's also links with, with other teams. So it'll be interesting if that comes about. I don't think we'll know for, for a couple of years, but it's good that we have the manufacturers interested in in entering the sport. The other sort but of commercial... They would be engine supplier only, not full team. I, uh, you, that's a good question. That's certainly the article I was reading was indicating, but they, they okay. may elect to, to buy a team or, or to try and get approval to, uh, to join the sport as a new entrant. I mean, yeah. Well, anything, you and I or, have talked a, a, a multiple times about the folly of Honda just being an engine supplier and not being a full team. Right. And the amount of the amount of publicity you get, the amount of credit you get as an engine supplier versus, you know, a full factory team was just, you know. Absolutely, just, that's a good point. But they would still have to supply other teams upon request. Well, of right? course. So, yes, yes, yes. Of course. Absolutely. Yeah. But no, that is a valid point. They may consider to, uh, coming back. Uh, as a full-blown, uh, like a Mercedes uh, operation. Uh, speaking of Mercedes, the one piece of news that did uh, interest me was that their 
Mercedes actually own one, only one third of the team these days. Did you know that? So <laughs> the team I is know owned. That, I know that uh, uh, Toto Wolf owns a chunk of it himself, I believe, right. like 20% That's right. or something. Well, he owns a third of it. And Ineos, oh, okay. who's their new sponsor that, that started uh, sponsoring the team last year, is the other one-third owner. No kidding. So, yeah, I was really interested in that. So you basically got a Mercedes... I mean, it's essentially it's a Mercedes branding op- operation now, isn't it? It's like a la- it's a glorified sponsorship deal, really, when you think but, of it. So hold terms. on, though. So how would that work? Because doesn't Mercedes own the engine... I mean, Mercedes owns the Bricksworth team. The, the, I forget Mercedes Performance Engines or whatever it's called. Like yeah. that's technically not part of the Formula One team, right? So yeah, so that's and a very Mercedes good question. owns that, yeah. don't they? Yeah. So I don't. So I don't know. With this uh, holding that, as it was explained, pertains to the chassis team in Brackley and the engine operation in Bricksworth, or just the chassis team in Brackley. So yes, I'll be honest. I don't know that level of detail. But I was still surprised to know that Mercedes had relinquished control, even if it's only half of, of the operation, to just one third. And and, uh, and it kind of got me thinking a little bit after our sponsorship discussion not so long ago. If you look at most of the teams now, um, you know, four of them are manufacturers and you basically run for the benefit of, of the, the primary OEM. Um, and then you've got three sponsor-owned teams that are essentially just there for their own branding of whatever it is they make. I'm speaking particularly of Red Bull and Alfa Romeo, right? Because Mm -hmm. Alfa is essentially just branding the Sauber Ferrari chassis and engine, right? So there's nothing Alfa Romeo in that car at all. It's a pure sponsorship operation. Um, And Uh then the the other three teams, McLaren, Williams... um, and uh, are basically trying to still run off the old operation of, of getting title sponsors. And that whole, just seems very antiquated now. It's like it, the sport's moved on. It doesn't work that way anymore. No one wants to come in. And Ineos is a good example. Nobody wants to come in and just pay large amounts of money to have their logo on the car. They want to basically own part of the team. That seems to right. be how the sport has evolved. So uh, right. it's just curious. I hadn't really noticed that until I started thinking about it and looking at who sponsored what and who owned what. So Anyway, quickly, we digress a little bit. It's quite a right. Digression is the spice of life uh, in podcasting world anyway. Um, so Bricksworth, the Bricksworth building, is called Mercedes High Performance Powertrains. Okay. And, uh, and it, it is, as I remembered it, it is what used to be Ilmore. Mm. And, and uh, it... According to Wikipedia, at least, Mercedes is still the owner. Um, uh, so it's a whole, uh, that's a complete subsidiary of, of Mercedes. Correct. Daimler, correct, Daimler, correct. Mercedes, okay. And quick aside, uh, this, this you're, you're correct. The, the team left the sport as the HRT Formula One team, but its original name was Campos. It was a Campos Formula One team. And, uh, and then that became His, Hispania Racing uh, Hispania Racing Team HRT shortened to, and that was that's what it. But uh, yeah, it was Adrian Campos was the was the man that that started the team in uh, you know around 2010, I believe. So mm-hmm. yeah, yes, I think uh, we all remember it being in the sport, although not for anything that they did on track. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's it, it's uh, 
It it here here's its list of its drivers though. This is a Ooh. fascinating. Uh, uh, Karun Chandok, Christian Klein or Clean, uh, Bruno Senna, Narain Kartikeyan, Daniel Ricardo, Vit Antonio Liuzzi, Pedro Della Rosa, and uh, Sakan Yamamoto. How many seasons did they last for? Was it like two or three? I don't know. Uh, it was 2010 through 2012. Okay. So yeah. three seasons, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean so, yeah. it was uh it was it was part of that effort to try and grow the grid, wasn't it? And the couple exactly of teams right. were allowed to come in and, and but then what the teams had been told was that a budget cap was also going to be introduced at the same time and then the budget cap wasn't introduced and these guys had no hope. Yeah. The budget oh. cap was set at two billion dollars. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and they these guys they ran uh they ran Cosworth V eights, so they were you know they were in that category as well, yeah. so yeah. But uh, okay, well, I think uh, we've digressed enough. I think for one day, probably. Um, what the good news is is we have um, uh, officially less than two weeks. I believe. I hope I'm doing the math right. Less than two weeks before the start of the first race. Yeah, that's right. And we'll find out if Red Bull are for real, and uh, maybe they'll. Uh They'll start the season as they finish the last one as race winners, and then we'll have a yeah. real uh, title battle on our hands potentially. Yeah, or, exactly. Or, and or this or is Max the last. Max no, please stroll off with it. Yeah, well, and this this is the last season for Honda to to do something, right? So that's right. Yeah. Uh, Did you see what Sergio came out with? Actually, while I while I think about it, Sergio was quite bullish in the uh, in in the in the launch phase. He was saying things like, um, you know, if the car's a race winner, I'm going to go for the title. Okay, good. You know who your teammate is. <laughs> hey, listen. I I love preseason positivity. I think it's just the most glorious thing. So, I I fully support it, and uh, and I support it from everyone. You know, right now there are twenty potential uh, world champions for twenty twenty one. So. Well, and Hulkenberg, if he gets, uh, gets enough <laughs> right, super exactly, exactly right. <laughs> So, um, and I do want to do a little bit of promotion of our new title sponsor, and that is uh, the Robin Warner YouTube channel. Uh, my my latest video is uh, dropped early this morning, uh, Eastern Daylight Time. Uh, we are now in daylight savings again in the states, and it's on the uh, Volkswagen Arteon, which is the. Uh, what they call, what Volkswagen calls its brand halo here in the U.S. So uh, please take a moment to check that out. It is, uh, it is a lovely video where I talk about cars, which is great because cars are like race cars for the road. See? So they're, they're very similar. <laughs> and uh, I, if, if things go to plan, this will be a very busy week in terms of videos coming out. So... Uh, please do stay tuned. But on that note, I want to thank you for listening. Please take a moment to review us on iTunes or on whatever platform you get our podcasts. Please leave comments on the episode of your choice by going to funwithcars.com. As always, I can be reached at feedback at funwithcars.com. Tweet us at fun underscore with underscore cars and check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash fwcars. And I'm actually not done. I also wanted to say it's the 12 Hours of Sebring this coming week. 
This is the week of the 12 hours of Seabrid, which is great endurance racing. Okay. So, there's this this might be the podcast with the most digressions in a single episode, Chris. We might have set a record. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I'm Robin Warner. Goodbye. Goodbye.